Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson. Today, we are joined by Professor Garrett Epps. He is an expert on constitutional law and the Supreme Court. He is the Atlantic Supreme Court correspondent. He's also written a number of books, including American Justice 2014, Nine Clashing Visions on the Supreme Court. Garrett Epps, thank you for passing judgment with us. <laughs> I'm very judgmental. I'm glad to be here. And that that's exactly why it's not your background in constitutional law. It's not the fact that you are a beautiful and brilliant writer. It's the judgmental part that we're really here for. I'm all about it. So we just wrapped up another Supreme Court term. And I have to say it felt like kind of a weird one, uh, partly because of COVID. Oral arguments for March and April were postponed, and instead the court heard oral arguments over the phone. We got to basically sit in on a conference call with the justices. And how and probably you- heard ju- Justice Thomas probably spoke more words in those sessions than he has in his previous 20-some years on the bench. So it has been very surreal. Right. So for the listeners, Justice Clarence Thomas... Uh, nominated by the first President Bush, famously is very, very quiet on the Supreme Court. How many times do we know has he spoken since he was appointed decades ago? I don't know, but I do know that since I started uh, covering the court in the fall of 2010, he had spoken twice. Uh, And both times in cases uh, so obscure that you know, there was, I was practically the only person in the press gallery when he talked and everybody in the chamber looked around and said, who the hell is interrupting the argument? This unfamiliar voice, but now, you know, he just speaks right up and his questions are just like regular questions. It's, it's a fascinating development. So did you have the same reaction I did when we're on the conference call with the justices? And of course, Chief Justice John Roberts goes first and then it's next uh, goes to Justice Thomas because they went in order of seniority. And I thought, well, we're just going to have dead air or we'll hear a pass. And then all yeah, of a sudden. Here- yeah, but it was it was just like it was no big deal. It's like, counsel, on page three of your complaint is, and you're like, well, that's what a judge would ask. What is Thomas doing asking that? So <laughs> uh, it, 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 was, it was truly fascinating. And uh, to be honest, you know, uh, I, I have always felt bad for Justice Thomas. He's got this amazing job, and in some sense, he's he's reluctant to do it. And whatever it takes, I'm glad he's now speaking up. His, his ideas are still terrible, but at least he's, you know, playing with the in the show. It was fascinating to hear him speak first and really change the course of the conversation. I mean, he really changed yes. the narrative. And it, it was to me, super jarring every time it happened. It was, you know, mm. who's driving the train here? But one of the big stories to come out of the Supreme Court is, of course, now we really do have the Roberts Court. Chief Justice John Roberts, I think, is now the most powerful jurist in the world and has clearly become the swing vote, which is something I thought I would never say, given how I think he really is very conservative. I never anticipated that he would be the middle. It. There's a lot of kind of think pieces asking, has he become a moderate? Has he become a liberal? Is there anything to that? Or 
is he still the same conservative Chief Justice John Roberts that we've grown to either know and love or hate over the past what, 15 years now? I, I don't think he has moderated his uh, underlying views at all. Chief Justice Roberts is a very conservative person. I think he reminds me of what Talleyrand supported, supposedly said about the Bourbon dynasty in France, that they uh, never learned anything and never forgot anything. I think his principles are the same ones that he came to uh, Washington with in the early 80s as a sort of uh, Reagan uh, junior woodchuck. Uh, but what he is, because he's not a movement conservative, he is an institutionalist. He is the chief justice. He has said several times that he is aware that chief justices are rated by the way that they conduct the court's business. Uh, and that he, he says, you, you want to be Charles Evans Hughes. Uh, you want to be John Marshall. You don't want to be Roger B. Tawney. Uh, and so he takes very seriously the prerogatives of the court, the dignity of the court, and the administration, this administration has persisted in treating the Supreme Court basically as the Solicitor General's idiot intern, uh, basically saying, you know, we've got, a, we've got, you know, some traffic court somewhere in Nebraska has ruled against the government. We want emergency relief because this is so humiliating to us. And What's remarkable is how much they've gotten away with it. The Supreme Court has been willing to step in uh, in a very preliminary basis. They did this twice this week, uh, for example, or, or in, in some of the big cases uh, like the DACA case in this term. You, you see the Chief Justice saying, you know, it's what I call in my, uh, uh, my con law classes, I call the full walk-in. You know, is that, that when a judge goes Christopher Walken on you, he says, what do you think I'm stupid? What do you think I'm stupid? Why do you treat me like I'm stupid? Right? And then shoots you in the head because he's so insulted. And I think Justice uh, Chief Justice Roberts, you know, looked at the administrative record in the DACA case. He looked at the administrative record um, in the census case, and he perceived that the government wasn't even making an effort. Uh, they were just saying, we want it this way, fix it for us. You belong, you work for me. And he doesn't, he doesn't work for, for Trump. Uh, I think he agrees with Trump on a lot of things, but he doesn't work for him. First of all, this podcast was not going to be complete until we had a Christopher Walken imitation. So yeah, thank absolutely. you for doing yeah. that. It's something we yeah. talked about in the planning meetings. I'm glad that you could bring it up. Um, I do veto Corleone too, but that, that'll come up later. Okay, that that's insane. I think we plan that for seven minutes from now. So let's get to how this plays out in the cases and how it plays out. I mean, you mentioned reproductive rights and how these mm-hmm. worldviews, whether or not you're a federalist, whether or not you are a conservative movement conservative or a movement conservative, I should say, mm-hmm. um, how this affects the court's decisions might take away from the court and you mentioned Roberts being an institutionalist, is exactly that, that Roberts is basically trying to do two things. He's trying to hold the integrity of the Supreme Court together with paper clips, rubber bands, and chewed gum, that he's saying, everything's fine here, we're functioning, the judiciary is working exactly as it should, and that he, so that's kind of goal number one, is to show the judiciary are made up of people who are not just politicians in robes, And then it seems like goal number two is to try and make people, particularly federal agencies, 
do a better job. And you mentioned, for instance, the um, census case from last term, where the question was whether or not the U.S. De- Department of Commerce could add a citizenship question, and that that case was uh, obviously analyzed under uh, the same federal law, the Federal Administrative Procedures Act, as was at issue in DACA. The same question as to whether or not the Trump administration could end DACA if they did it the right way. And in those cases, it felt to me like, let's take those cases first. It felt to me like Chief Justice John Roberts was saying, just do your homework, Trump administration, dot your I's, cross your T's, but don't come to me with something that's this sloppy. Either the Department of Commerce not having good reasons for wanting to add a citizenship question, basically lying and not just being honest that they want certain people to vote. And then in the DACA case, they were just sloppy, that they can end DACA, you just have to give different reasons. Was that your read of those two Federal Administrative Procedures Act cases, or what am I missing here? No, I I think that's right. Uh, I think that if you uh, could somehow uh, extract a policy view from Chief Justice Roberts about either of those, uh, he would be very much in tune with the objectives of the administration. But in both cases, the administration has gone beyond, you know, the kind of sloppiness or haste or something that that we're accustomed to seeing sometimes from the federal bureaucracy um, to outright lawlessness. I mean, let's just look at the DACA case. Uh, you know, the the there are enormously complicated procedures that are followed by the executive branch when they want to make a major policy change uh, to their application of federal statutes, in this case, the Immigration and Nationality Act. Uh, And when Barack Obama decided to announce the DACA uh, case, uh, the DACA program, uh, the the executive branch went through a policy of review. Uh, The Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department produced a 33-page memo arguing that it was legal. Now, you know, you may you may disagree. I know a lot of very uh, smart and principled people who think, no, that was the wrong call. But what you can't say is that they just woke up in the morning. You know, they used to have a saying in Mexico uh, that if the president of, of the Mexican Republic has a bad dream on Tuesday night, it's a constitutional amendment by Wednesday night. You can't have that kind of government, right? You can't. In the United States, we don't have that. And so Attorney General Sessions who now turns out to be in the moderate wing of Trumpism, who knew? But he uh, arrived as attorney general, determined to get rid of DACA. He'd been a critical critic of it uh, as a senator. And instead of following these procedures, instead of uh, getting a new opinion from OLC, he just held a press conference. He said, DACA, DACA you know, is uh, uh, unlawful. It's unconstitutional. I'm rescinding it. OLC is Office of Legal Counsel for everybody playing at home. They are the attorney general's lawyers. And when they produce an opinion, I mean, this is an office that has a very high or has had until recently a very high reputation for, you know, integrity, for saying to presidents, there are things you cannot do. They said that to uh, uh, Barack Obama uh, for carefully working through the legal implications of, of proposed executive actions. Uh, but, you know, the, the uh, uh, sessions just completely uh, did an end run 
uh, around OLC, the uh, secretary, acting secretary of Homeland Security was told this is unlawful. We need it rescinded. Uh, a very short uh, memo was issued by the uh, uh, Department of Homeland Security, uh, and it was challenged not on the grounds that the federal government can't rescind DACA. Right. I don't think anybody ever said that on any side of this litigation. What the challenge was, look, you can't do it that way. You can't just take the considered legal judgment of the federal uh, executive branch and just say, you know, this sucks, change it. That That is not the way administrative law works. And the, the uh, secretary was given a second chance by a district judge who said, look, you haven't done the work. Could you please explain why it is you haven't filed this ability? And they filed a second memo after 30 days saying, you know, like, like uh, Joe Pesci in... Uh, my cousin Vinny saying, nah, I think I'll just take the $200. You know, they, they, they just, they, they refuse to do, they refuse to do any more. And so this, this comes to the Supreme court, the administration is, uh, and, and it came, came to the Supreme court against a very extraordinary background. And it's something that we must take account of because, uh, it seems like it happened 10 years ago because this is what the year we're living through is like, but it happened, uh, only in, Around Thanksgiving, on Thanksgiving Eve, um, there was the I, I think unprecedented, uh, unique, uh, open rupture between the president and the chief justice. I can't believe that was just this Thanksgiving. Yes, it's the same term. It's the same term of court, and uh, uh, the uh, president received a minor setback at a dis- the district court level. Um, uh, Judge Tiger of a district court in California uh, said that his new asylum rules uh, didn't conform to the INA and had to be redone. And the president immediately tweeted, this is, this is not law, this is an Obama judge. And Mark Sherman of the Associated Press, uh, a wonderful reporter, uh, got the idea of just saying, you know, I wonder what John Roberts thinks about that. And he, he called the, the uh, public affairs office and, you know, uh, kick me in the leg and call me gimpy. The next thing that happens is that the chief justice issued a rebuke, a public statement saying, we do not have Obama judges. We do not have Trump judges. We have an ex- a judicial branch of talented judges, all of whom are trying to do, trying to apply the law. Now, this was remarkable enough. You know, I, I was just like out of my chair when I heard this had happened. But the next step was that Trump tweeted back calling out the Chief Justice by name. Sorry, Chief Justice John Roberts. You do have Trump judges and Obama judges. So, you know, the the terms of the direct challenge to judicial independence, the display of contempt by the head of the executive branch for the head of the judicial branch could hardly be clearer. I mean, it makes Andrew, uh, Andrew Jackson you know, look like a, a member of, of the Supreme Court Historical Society. It was just so <laughs> contemptuous. And and so the Chief Justice is operating with this awareness that the administration regards the courts and him as either, you know, sort of dim-witted subordinates who have to be brought in line or enemies. Uh, it must be a very unusual feeling. It is astonishing to see the attack mm-hmm of the judiciary by the president of the United States. But let me play devil's advocate for a minute. Is 
does President Trump have a bit of a point, which is that maybe not for district court judges as much, but for judges on the Court of Appeals, judges in the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court justices, that it does really make a difference who appointed these judges and that there are, in fact, Obama judges and Trump judges and that they elections have consequences and these two judges fundamentally have different worldviews. Well, I think there's no question that, that that is correct as far as it goes. Um, and it has always been relevant uh, who appointed a judge, but not determinative until very recently. If you look back at the Warren court, you know, considered to be this great liberal court, uh, the, the leadership of that court in its uh, series of decisions, broadening suspects' rights and, and uh, ending racial segregation. The leadership of that court was two Republican appointees, uh, uh, Earl Warren and, and Bill Brennan. Um, and so you always had liberal Republicans and you had conservative Democrats. So conservatism versus liberalism always made a difference. Uh, and of course, in the question of federal power, uh, it made a huge difference when President Roosevelt appointed New Dealers, basically, to to prevent the court from destroying uh, the modern administrative state. But we have now in the court, for the first time in history, uh, a court that is divided by party, five to four, and uh, in which there is no conservative judge who is a Democrat, there is no liberal judge who is a Republican. We have a straight party system, with Roberts as the sort of swing vote, but his swing vote is not. And I, I will, you know, you can strap me to the mast on this one. His swing vote <laughs> is never a result of moderate views on the policy. So let's... Uh, his views... Yeah, go ahead. No, uh, no, finish that thought, please. Well, I, I just think if you look at the times he's crossed, uh, they've been institutional issues being expressed, like the ones we've discussed. You know, he he's just like, you have pushed me too far. I'm not going there. Come back and you'll win. But, you know, don't treat me like an idiot. Yeah, let's talk about where that happens. So our my working theory is that Roberts basically cares about two things. One, that we respect the Supreme Court, that we don't think that there are Trump judges and Obama judges, that we think that there are a federal bench doing, I think he said, it's level best every day. They go to work, they're applying new sets of facts to the law, and that conservative political philosophy doesn't always map neatly onto conservative judicial philosophy. And so we talked a little bit about the DACA case. We talked about um, the census case, the citizenship case from last term. Let's um, talk about two more cases before we wrap up where we see Roberts joining liberals. One of them um, is the case dealing with Title VII of the Civil Rights Act and whether or not a prohibition against workplace discrimination on on account of, quote, sex includes LGBTQ workers, meaning under federal law, are you protected if you're an LGBTQ worker? Um, if you're discriminated against on, again, on account of your status and justice Neil Gorsuch appointed by president Trump writes the opinion, chief justice, John Roberts joins the opinion. 
I have the theory that it's actually quite a conservative opinion with that just happens to have a liberal outcome. But how do we have a 63 decision in that super politically charged case? Well, you know, Justice Gorsuch is a fascinating story, and, and we've seen two sides of him uh, this term. Uh, he apparently does take the idea of text very seriously. Uh, you know, he said, I'm a textualist. Uh, and, you know, when it came to uh, Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act, which says that uh, people can't be discriminated against in employment because of such individual sex, he says the text says because of sex. And when you say, uh, you're a gay man, so I'm going to discriminate against you, you know, had, did you happen to notice that you used the word man in there, that that sex, you know, that sexual orientation classifications are sex classifications. And I think that that simply as a matter of, of linguistics is, is not a particularly liberal result. What was fascinating was the extent to which the, uh, the other, the three conservative dissenters had to torture uh, yeah. their judicial philosophy and say, we know what they were thinking in their heads and they weren't thinking this, so they can't have it. Um, and just, uh, but notice that in that case, um, Roberts wasn't the swing vote. It was Gorsuch. And Roberts, as you may recall, had written a very bitter dissent, you know, in the Obergefell case. It said states must recognize and celebrate gay marriage. He just said this as the Constitution doesn't provide this. I don't know where you're getting it, but shame on you. I think we can infer that that uh, behind that is not particular, particularly hatred, but but a kind of religious reservation about homosexuality. And there's no sign that he's abandoned that. But he did vote with Gorsuch, and I think that that was an institutional vote. I don't think that it's because he's had this great change of heart, uh, a Kennedy-esque change of heart, and now loves uh, LGBTQ people. I think that he felt the court would be on more solid ground. This, you know, He knew this was going to be one of the hottest uh, decisions of the term, if not the hottest. The court would be on uh, more solid ground if it was six to three than if it was five to four. And he very quietly joined the majority in that. You brought up the Bostock decision and whether or not LGBTQ workers are protected under federal law. And the fact that right. Neil Gorsuch writes the opinion, Chief Justice John Roberts joins. and But it probably goes against his personal beliefs because he Absolutely. dissented in the gay marriage case. And, yes. and it shows, and I think it really brings into stark relief, this idea that he says, I care about precedent. I care about what we just said, which of course leads us to the June medical case, which is a, an abortion restriction case. And let's end with this case, which is, it's a Louisiana law that says if you're an abortion provider, you have to have admitting privileges to a local hospital. This sounds familiar to listeners because it's almost exactly the same law that was at issue in uh, a Texas case, Whole Woman's Health, in 2016. Now, of course, what's different on the court from 2016 to 2020 is that uh, Justice Kennedy, who had at that point been the only person to write opinions uh, in in favor of gay rights had retired and his former clerk, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, replaced him. And so the question before the court really was, are you going to respect the fact that this case was just decided in the Texas case by five to four with Chief Justice John Roberts dissenting, meaning he would have upheld the restriction, 
uh, the court struck down the restrictions. Again, if Chief Justice John Roberts was in the majority, he would have said, I'm okay with these restrictions. It comes back four years later, and he says in this painfully written concurrence, the court is divided 4-4. He writes this separate opinion. It's really narrow. And to me, the opinion sounds like, I don't have a choice. I have to join because we just decided this case, but I'm going to write separately to tell you that I'm going to try and water down the standard we use to evaluate uh, abortion restrictions. So with that, is that what was going on in June Medical? Is there something behind the scenes? Is this just John Roberts has decided it's an election year. I'm the chief justice of the United States, and we have to show that precedent matters. Well, you know, I think that um, there's a lot of communication going on uh, in that case. And and as we mentioned uh, earlier in the DACA case, for example, there's kind of interbranch communication, right? Is is uh, uh, Chief Justice Roberts doing the full walk into the executive branch saying, you know, don't come here again with this crap. Do your job if you want me to, to be your executioner. Uh, and this was communication, I think, not intra-branch. It was communication between this uh, uh, Supreme Court majority and the courts of appeals because uh, the uh, June Medical Associates case came out of the the Fifth Circuit, which was the same circuit that had heard the uh, whole woman's health uh, case. And the Fifth Circuit had upheld the restrictions in whole woman's health saying, basically, as we read the precedents, all we have to do is check to make sure these are really medical rules. And if they are, it doesn't matter whether they uh, really are, are useful or not. We don't, that's not our job. So they had upheld the uh, Texas restrictions. The Supreme Court, uh, five to three, there was, there was one, there were one justice down at the time, uh, struck those down and said, no, they don't provide any real advantage uh, there's no medical reason for these. They're just uh, an undue burden, and they're going to make it impossible for women to get uh, abortions. Okay, uh, it was a really good, clear opinion uh, by Justice Breyer, and I recognize that that's kind of an oxymoron. But it was, you know, it's it's his best work. And uh, so uh, and then, of course, we have a new election. We have new uh personnel on the court. We have particularly the appointment of, uh, of Justice Kavanaugh, who really is, you know, whose, whose views on abortion, to the extent you can derive them, are just extreme. So again comes the same law. And, you know, the, the sponsors of this law in the Louisiana legislature were very explicit, like, damn, guys, they got this awesome rule in Texas. It keeps anybody from getting an abortion. It's all medical and stuff. And so they pass exactly the same law. And the job of the Fifth Circuit, you know, this is every first-year law student learns this, the job of a court of appeals is to apply precedent of the Supreme Court. It should have just said, you know, no. You know, the court has already ruled on these precise issues. But the Fifth Circuit really has is a rogue circuit in, in many areas. They are uh, conducting a kind of guerrilla war against the First Amendment, for example, uh, trying to get the court to, to move uh, very strongly to the right on First Amendment issues. Uh, they just looked at it and they said, well, uh, looks kind of different to me. Again, 
what they did was put the court in a very difficult position. They put Chief Justice Roberts in particular in the position of having to either go against his very, I think, very intensely held personal views about abortion or just saying, you're right. You know, Trump judges, we have two new judges, you know, we have new judges. That's a constitutional argument. That would have been just a bridge too far for him. And he writes separately his, his uh, separate opinion saying, I'm voting to overturn this Louisiana law. You can read it real carefully to find a single friendly word about the right of reproductive choice. He's yeah. not down with that at all. What he says is two things. First of all, don't do this to us. We do not redecide the same case because we have different personnel. That that is, that is not law. You know, that's uh, uh, the congressional election of of two thousand nineteen ninety four. He says we don't we don't do that. Um, and then he says, "Let me just tell you how I read the precedent, and I read it a lot more narrowly than the four others do." Uh, I don't think you have to produce a lot of medical evidence for one of these restrictions. And if one comes to me that's really different and presents different issues, I may take a whole different look at it. Uh, And he also signals from the tone, the the sort of hostile tone of that separate opinion, that he's really, he wants to hear these cases that directly, honestly, forthrightly challenge the cases like Roe versus Wade, uh, Casey, uh, and Hellerstedt, Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt. He wants to hear those challenges. His vote is very much available. But he says, you're not going to make me dance like a monkey on a string. And Judge Jerry Smith of the Fifth Circuit is not the Chief Justice of the United States. I am. We have not had anybody do impressions with the same gusto uh, that you have. And so that is, that is something well, that the passing judgment podcast really needs. If you, if you come to me in friendship before this, <laughs> like me for a cup of coffee, we, you know, you, the animals that hurt your podcast will be suffering today. So, you know, I think just, we might at some point need a ringtone for the podcast and that, or a, <laughs> a quote and that might be it. So, okay. Um, as our loyal listeners know, we like to end the podcast by asking our guests uh, the same three questions because we just learned a lot from you, but maybe not a ton about you. So here we go. Which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party and why? Wow. Well, if, if I could invite a married couple, I'd want Frito, Frida and Diego. Uh, you know, they are just my idols uh, of how to live and uh, I love their art. Um, and I think that that would, you know, plus Frida was one hell of a cook. So I I would let her cook. Well, which brings us to, you're going to be stranded on a desert Island and you can bring one meal. What is it? Boy, that's a good one. It's close, but I'm going to go with mole, mole poblano. You know, if you tell me that that's not available, then I'm going with pulled pork Carolina style. None of this, no ketchup based sauce, but, uh, but vinegar. Finally, you get a superpower for one hour. What is it and why? Uh, invisibility. Uh, you know, there are certain faces that need slapping, and I could take care of a number of them in, in one hour if I go back to Washington. So I, I'm going to go with that. 
on that note, on the uh, invisibility slapping note, you can find Professor Garrett Epps on Twitter at Prof Epps, that's E-P-P-S. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast at Pass Judgment Pod, and the podcast on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. Thank you to our listeners. We are only a few weeks old. We're so happy to have you join us, and we will see you next time. <laughs>